Last week in Daniel chapter 11, we gave some exposition and summary of the first 20 verses of this chapter, and we looked at the historical context of Daniel chapter 11 and tried to see it in its proper sense and understanding. We looked at it in the summarizing of uh, history, but through uh, God's work and prophecy, God using uh, his servant to bring vision to Daniel, that Daniel could have some understanding of what was to come in the future. He had already given him previous visions in Daniel 7 and 8, and these things had really been intriguing to Daniel's mind, and some of it he couldn't fully comprehend, and he said he needed to know more and wanted to understand more, and he continued to seek God in knowing uh, what may happen to the people of Israel and what may come their way. And so Daniel 11 was a further unfolding of those visions from these previous chapters. And we see here in these these verses a succinct summing up in only the way prophecy can do of future uh, occurrences. Now it's history to us, but it was not history to Daniel. To Daniel that would have been future events. And we saw that there was this summing up of Uh, some 350 years of history uh, in just about 18 verses. So Daniel was given future history of what was very near to him uh, in the coming of Cyrus the Great and what would take place in the Persian Empire, moving forward all the way through uh, Alexander the Great and coming to the difficulties between the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucid Empire of the north, which was uh, the, the Assyrian Empire in that sense of the old, um, and a portion of what used to be the Persian Empire. And there was context to that because we began to see the struggle between these two uh, empires and their, their subsequent kings, uh, the Ptolemies in the south and Egypt, and this Seleucid Empire in the north, and the struggles between the two, and Jerusalem and the people uh, of Israel are sandwiched in between these two nations. And as we ended last week, we really ended with uh, the end of Antiochus the Great, or Antiochus the Third. Uh, and some of us, you know, we say, what does all this matter? Uh, it will matter. Now, whether or not we fully understand why it matters, I don't know. But it will matter, and hopefully we'll see the context of why it matters. And really, we're seeing why Bible history is so important to us. If you're not willing to dig in and see the history of the Scripture and God not only giving us what happened in the past, but even God giving some of what is history to us, giving it to His people at the time in future prophecy then we're not recognizing that God is the God of all history. God is the God of time and space and matter. And so these things also have an importance in the context of us seeing how God's people are dealt with in the sense of of the whole of the world, and it's pushing forward toward toward the time of the coming Messiah. And so we want to see how God is unfolding that, but furthermore, we want to see why he's unfolding that and how he's dealing with that. And as we ended with Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great, we came to a place uh, at the end of verse 20 to see that Antiochus III goes away and we're coming into the time 
of uh, Antiochus IV of Epiphanes. Now, um, I'm not going to read all of these verses right now because I'm going to go through them kind of systematically this morning. I think that will help some in seeing the big picture here as we, as we move along. But as we talk about Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, we're recognizing him from earlier portions of Daniel chapter 8. He was a, a promised one who was going to be uh, a, an antichrist of his day. Um, and we had noted that earlier when we dealt with Daniel chapter 8, that there was a sense of that being uh, recognized in John's letter, 1 John, when it talks about antichrists and these who are against the things of God, and, and, and we'll see exactly why uh, he is one of those who is an antichrist figure as we move along. Well, who is Antiochus IV Epiphanes? Well, you need to know Antiochus IV, we know is his name, and it's his recognition of his being in the line of the Seleucid Empire. He follows Antiochus III. But he took on the name Epiphanes, uh, and that name uh, simply translated is manifestation of God. He took on upon himself the idea that he, in and of himself, is the manifestation of God. Now that seems a little problematic, doesn't it? From the very beginning, you've accepted that name. Uh, and so we can see some of the descriptions from history of Antiochus, uh, why they might describe him the way they do, if you're willing to take on that you are in and of yourself the manifestation of God when you alone are a dying man. Um, one writer says, Antiochus combined in himself the worst faults of the Greeks and the Romans and but very few of their good qualities. He was vainglorious and fond of display to the verge of eccentricity, liberal to extravagance. His sojourn in Rome, which we'll mention more in just a moment, had taught him how to captivate the common people with an appearance of geniality, but in his heart, he had all a cruel tyrant's contempt for his fellow man. He was, looked very congenial on the outside, but what was in his heart was great cruelty, and we'll see it. The historian Polybius, who was a contemporary of uh, Antiochus, referred to the king as Epimenes, the insane one. You'll hear sometimes uh, history writers uh, note this and they'll say, well, there's Antiochus IV uh, or Epiphanes, manifestation of God, or Antiochus IV, Epimenes, he's the mad one. Uh, so they're kind of making fun of him. He told many tales of Antiochus's drunken, eccentric behavior, according to one writer uh, pulling this out of Polybius, including sneaking out of the palace to feast at parties with commoners and play his flute. Apparently, he was such a bad musician or just such an annoying buffoon that most people fled the parties. That's how Polybius looked at him. Well, when we consider this kind of a man and his willingness to take on this idea of the manifestation of God, what is Daniel shown in this vision that Antiochus IV will do? And what does he do? 
Well, I think the scripture begins to unfold these things in these, uh, in just these few verses. And it, as one writer says, it's with uncanny accuracy. Now, remember what's happening with prophecy. Prophecy is not meant to outline for you every single detail that happens in every single 30 seconds of someone's life or in the life of a kingdom or so forth. What prophecy does is give you main themes and ideas that point to something directly and it gives you enough information to know the directness of who it's speaking about yet it gives you succinct measure to understand the main theme is they did this and it was bad and so forth. So when you see this in prophetic language in Daniel chapter 11, recognize the succinctness of the verses is not because um, God doesn't know what's going to happen. The amazing thing is, is the kind of language that's used, once it's unfolded in history and now we can look back at it, back at it we go, Wow. Scripture in just a few verses is able to outline what Antiochus of Epiphanes would do and what he did. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 20, let's read verses 20 and 21. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom... Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Main point number one this morning. Antiochus, or Antiochus, however you pronounce that. Some of you may pronounce that differently. Antiochus connivingly roots out his brother. Connivingly roots out his brother. We need to see this in several steps under number one. Letter A, Antiochus imprisoned for his father's debt to Rome. Antiochus imprisoned for his father's debt to Rome. When we see verse 20 says, then in his place, and verse 21 says, in his place, it's speaking of Antiochus coming into the place of his brother. And his brother uh, was Seleucus IV. So we need to note how this occurred. Antiochus imprisoned for his father's debt to Rome. Soon after Antiochus III, or the Great, uh, was defeated by Rome in 189, he had a son who was sent to Rome to continue to pay the debt, and that son was Antiochus IV. One writer observed that he served as a hostage for his father in Rome from 189 to 175 B.C., and there is where he learned to admire Roman institution and policies. So we have to recognize what took place. When Antiochus III, when he left the throne, he left the throne under great pressure because he had been uh, 
you know, suppressed by the Romans, and he owed them tribute, and so he eventually was trying to go around and pilfer other nations to get his tribute to pay Rome, and in the midst of that, he was killed in battle somewhere, and he died, and when he died, his son was then uh, sent to Rome to continue to pay the tribute by being a hostage. Well, that meant that Seleucus IV uh, would come to the throne, and then... As that happened, um, interestingly enough, I don't understand all the ins and outs of this, but strangely, Antiochus is released uh, in a prisoner exchange. And strangely enough, he's released for his nephew. So Seleucus IV sends his own son for prisoner exchange for his brother, Antiochus IV. And Antiochus is released from prison from Rome, and Demetrius goes and has to spend his time in prison all the way until 162 B.C. Seems kind of odd that you would send your son for that kind of a purpose, especially when Antiochus had his mind to get the throne himself. And so what does... Antiochus do after this prisoner exchange takes place and Demetrius his nephew goes to Rome Antiochus along the way uh, he hears about the death, death of his brother while he's in Athens and that death came through the treasurer of the Seleucid Empire now note in verse 20 it says uh, then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Now the jewel of his kingdom is a recognition that this treasurer was the one. I don't remember his name. It started with an H and it was kind of hard to uh, pronounce. Uh, I wouldn't try it right now because I, I, I forgot it in my mind. But you have to recognize this particular treasurer, he was sent as this jewel of the kingdom to be the oppressor. How was he the oppressor? Well, he was the one who actually poisoned Seleucus IV. Well, Antiochus hears about this. How does he hear about it? Because he's had a part in making sure that this happens. He hears about this and he seeks to take the throne. Well, Antiochus seizes an opportunity at the throne of the Seleucid Empire. So while Demetrius is imprisoned and Antiochus IV Epiphanes goes free, this treasurer does his dirty deed. So this means that Seleucid IV, his reign was short and inconsequential. That's why it only takes up a phrase or two in verse 19 to 20. Well, it's noted that there's a lot of intrigue in this rise of power. Verse 21, in his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship was not conferred. Well, this is how Antiochus came to the throne. He came to the throne through his brother being poisoned. He was never actually earning the throne or was his right to the throne. He took the throne by this intrigue and it was never conferred upon him. And he came during a time where really the Seleucids weren't really in battle in major war with anybody. So it, here it is in verse 21. It's a time of tranquility. 
and he seized the kingdom by intrigue. That means he worked his, his ways, uh, his intrigue, uh, while uh, using this, this treasure. As one writer notes, uh, Antiochus obtained an army and marched east. He took the Seleucid throne seemingly in place of his nephew Demetrius and as a co-regent with another nephew who was, interestingly enough, named Antiochus, but he was only just an infant. And somehow that Antiochus, who was an infant, five years later he ended up dead. Hmm, strange. So we can see that this person, Antiochus IV, he is the despicable person of verse 21. The honor of king was not conferred upon him. He took it. He did it in a time in between major wars, and he did it by intrigue, or as one writer says, by smooth methods or slippery ways. Well, in him rising to the throne, he had this he had this desire to root out his brother. Secondly, main point number two, Antiochus initially seeks to rout the Jews. After he comes to the throne, he initially seeks out to, to rout the Jews. This is verses 22 through 24, and we'll read that now. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him. Speaking, the hymn is Antiochus Epiphanes. Be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. Well, we see here that he's initially going to seek to, to rout the Jews. There was an ongoing debate among the Jews at the time, and it had been happening. We, we mentioned it last week. There were some Jews, they wanted, let's stick with the traditions. And if we're under the Ptolemies of the South, there's not as much religious and cultural pressure. And we can continue to do the things that we do. Some of that was genuine desire to follow the ways of God by the remnant. Some of that was just keeping tradition. There are also groups among the Jews in those days who were saying, no, we want to have more Greek culture and, and Greek change. And we are even willing to bring in some of the Greek religion. And this was called the Hellenization of the Jews. And so the Seleucids wanted to bring that into the Jewish empire. The kingdom of the north wanted to come south and make the Jews be more Hellenistic or Greek. The south, the Ptolemies, were saying, no, eh, you know, if you'll pay a little homage here and there, we're good to go and we're not going to press you with all of this. And so the Jews, in between both of these warring nations, were constantly fighting even among themselves as to what they would do. They saw, some of them, saw the pressure of the Greeks and the Romans coming to some extent. And it was fine because the Greek and the Roman culture had really thrived and there was uh, a lot of uh, richness in that culture in the sense of bringing forth richness to the people around. 
and they had this real idea that we could grow as Jews and maybe even be those who are formed into a greater nation by coming under this Hellenization. But other Jews were saying, no, we don't want that. We want to stay with those things which we know to be true. And so as this was happening, here comes Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he seizes on this argument between them because he does want them to be more like the Greeks. He's learned in his time in Rome while he was imprisoned, he's learned more about the Greek system and even to some degree uh, the Roman system that's just burgeoning and it's going to be pushing forward. He's learned about that and he likes it. Why? Because what he sees is power. That's really what he sees. And he saw Rome as a continual rising power. And he thought, you know what? They've really kind of adjusted the Greek ideals into their Roman context. And they now are really, uh, you know, ruling the Greeks, so to speak. And they've accepted this Greek culture. And they're having more power and more power. And so, you know what? Let's bring that into this Seleucid Empire. And we'll take on the Jews. And we'll just crush them. And then eventually we'll take over Egypt. And we'll be able to put all of this forward as though it's under Antiochus Epiphanes IV. I will be the king of this great empire. Well... The Jews are caught in the middle of that, and as they're caught in the middle of it, even one of their own high priests is uh, one who gets caught up in the middle of this debate. And verse 22 alludes to it. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him, speaking of Antiochus, and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, um, as one writer notes, uh, the idea of the prince of the covenant here, uh, it's probably better translated a covenant prince. Um, that's probably the better translation. And it's, it seems to be referring to this one particular high priest, uh, Aeneas III. Uh, he's a high priest of Jerusalem at the time, and he's the one that gets caught in the middle of this discussion among the Jews about whether we're going to Hellenize or we're going to stay under the, the reign of the Ptolemies. Well... Aeneas says, let's keep the tradition. And so he casts out all of these uh, Jews who want to be Hellenized, and he just I mean, goes after them with all the power that he has. And all of those Jews who get cast out, guess what they do? <laughs> they cry like big babies, and they go to Antiochus IV of Epiphanes and say, look what he did to us. And Antiochus says, meh. I have you on my side now. I'll show these Jews. Well, Antiochus decided to make an impression upon the Jews, and Josephus wrote about it this way. He said, The king, being thereto disposed beforehand, complied with them, and came upon the Jews with a great army, and took their city by force, and slew a great multitude of those that favored Ptolemy, and sent out his soldiers to plunder them without mercy. Well, afterwards, there seemed to be a, some time of peace, and Antiochus continued making alliances among the Jews, and that's really what verse 24 is about, and that he never really kept any of these alliances. In time, tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, which was peace. 
His fathers had never accomplished this peace among the Jews. And he will distribute uh, all of these spoils uh, among them and possessions among them, and he will devise schemes against the strongholds. He's making alliances. He's acting as though he's going to be this peaceful ruler, but all along the way he's scheming. And this is exactly what Antiochus did. He was, a, he was a schemer. And ultimately, because he will not adhere to these alliances that he makes, if you've ever heard about the Maccabean Wars, we'll talk about that a little later, that's why these Maccabean Wars ensue, and they become a, a great part of this prophecy. So, number three, main point number three. Antiochus, or Antiochus inevitably resumed fighting with the Ptolemies. After he tries to rout the Jews, he's going to resume fighting with the Ptolemies. Um, and Antiochus attacks Egypt once again, and this is verses 25 to 26. Now, we're, we're going to look under number three, we're going to look at verses 25 to 30a. Letter A under that is verse 25 to 26, Antiochus or Antiochus attacks Egypt once again. Now, in one sense, we should be surprised. We, we, really, we really shouldn't be surprised that he's going back to fight with the Egyptians once again. This is just what they do. All right? But yet, on another hand, we have some hope for something different. Don't you, don't you read sometimes in the Old Testament, reading certain things, and don't you read it and go... Man, I'd really hope this would be different. Why do these kings of Israel keep going backwards? Well, this is a place where we're recognizing that even in the pagan nations, it wasn't any different. It kept going backwards. So we have to see under letter A, Antiochus or Antiochus attacks Egypt once again. Firstly, Antiochus forestalled an Egyptian expedition to Palestine by invading Egypt. Look at verse 25. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Well, what Antiochus does is he says, you know what? If there's going to be this expedition by the, the kingdom of the south, I'm going to go in, uh, and they're going to go into Palestine. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen, and I'm going to attack Egypt first. And he defeated the Egypts between Pelusium and Mount uh, Cassian. And when he did this, it brought about the context of him conquering them in that moment. This means that in 169 B.C., he occupied Egypt with the exception of Alexandria, the capital. So now, all of these pieces of intrigue are falling together. He wages war against the king of the south. He wins. There's schemes that go on behind closed doors that keep the king of the south from being able to rise up against him and actually conquer him. In one sense, the Ptolemies should have been able to conquer him, but they weren't because of all this, this scheming going on behind closed doors uh, in, at the end of verse 25 and verse 26. 
Well, after he attacks Egypt once again, letter B, Antiochus returns home from attacking Egypt, and he deals a blow to the Jews along the way. And this is verses 27 and 28. He's dealt this major uh, defeat to the Egyptians, and he's headed back home. And then verse 27, As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Well, they try to work out this peace between Egypt and the Seleucids. Uh, There's great schemes. It doesn't work out, and because they can't really get it worked out along the way, Uh, home, he says, you know what, I'm just going to kind of plunder the Jews on my way home. Now, I want you to get a picture of this. Daniel is seeing, in future sense, all of the troubles of the people of Israel. Now, Now, think about that for a moment. In our minds and our hearts, if you received warning about all of the upcoming troubles in your life in near and far future. Should that have an effect on you? What Daniel is being shown is, is that here's these troubles. There's a reason for these troubles. These troubles are the consequences of the continued blasphemy against God by the people of Israel. I have, now think about it. There's 1,500 years of history has gone by. 1,500 years of the people of Israel doing it their way, not listening to the God who loved them and who brought them out of Egypt not listening to the God who gave them His law written on tablet stone so they could see it and know it and understand it. They had worshipped every idol that they could get a hold of. They had broken the law of God time and time again. He sent His prophets already. The nation of Israel had had one prophet after another saying to them, do not break God's law. Stop doing it. Because you won't stop doing it, there are consequences that are coming. And now Daniel's being shown there's already been a consequence. Why? Because they've been brought into exile, right? That's already been a consequence. The temple was already destroyed. And now in the life of Daniel, they're they're coming to be able to be sent back in the time of Cyrus. And they're rebuilding the temple, but it's really frustrating and it's really hard because people are slowing them down. Other pagan groups are slowing them down. And it's really being, it's, it's a difficult time for them. And Daniel's being shown that there's only more difficulty ahead because there's more disobedience. And here we have in this revelation that Antiochus, after he defeats Egypt, 
he just decides on the way back, you know what? Let me just, let me just needle the Jews on my way home. I'm just going to travel through their land, box their head a little bit, take some stuff from them, and go back. And you know what? Historically, that's exactly what happened. This was given to us in the succinct prophecy here, but historically we now know that's exactly what happened. In verse 28, Antiochus returns from Egypt with spoils and seeks to deal with the Jews while they continue to fight among themselves over the infringing Hellenization of their religion and culture. And Jews are having all this infighting. They're the people of God. As, as the people of God, they ought to have one thing, one thing solid in their minds. We are God's people and we will worship as He told us to worship and we will follow His commands as He gave them to us. And it was ten of them. Ten of them. You would think in our brains we go, well, ten can't be that hard. Yet we break them every day in our mind and our heart. We're no different than them. God says to his people, there's consequences, even in small ways. This wasn't full-out destruction at this point, although that's coming. This is plunder on the way home. Let me just box your head a little bit while I pass through your country and take what I want. And this is God saying, don't you see how patient I've been? 1,500 years I've been patient. I don't know about y'all. Do y'all think 1,500 years is a long time? How many of y'all, don't raise your hand, but how many of you can lose your patience in less than 15 seconds? Right? I messed up my hair. I mean, it takes us that long. And God has shown his patience. Ooh. In one way, we could say, that's unfair. God's being mean. He should not let those bad Seleucids do that. No, 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 no. Really? Really? At some point, there's consequence and there's reckoning. Well, after he harasses the Jews on the way home, Verses 29 to 30a. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. So this is sometime a little bit later. It's not too far later, but it's a little bit later. But this last time, speaking of when he tries to come into the south, into the kingdom of the Ptolemies, Egypt, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim, or this is, can be translated 
the ships of the coastlands. For ships of Katim will come against him. What we see here in verse 29 and 30a is Antiochus, he seeks to attack Egypt once again. But his desires are squashed by another rising power. One writer noted that Antiochus invaded Egypt again, this time with disastrous results. The rising Mediterranean power of the day, the Romans, that's the reference to the ships of the Katim as the Romans, they became involved in this dispute. Now, there's some things you need to know and understand. Antiochus IV Epiphanes had hoped to always keep the Romans at bay. And one way that he wanted to keep the Romans at bay was that he had a connection to Ptolemy VI of Egypt. And that connection is, is that Ptolemy VI of Egypt was his nephew. It was the daughter of Epiphanes' sister. And his sister was Cleopatra I. Now, if you want to talk about Cleopatra and Mark Antony and all those kinds of things, you can start to, I'm not going to go into all that. That's a whole different subject. But you can start to kind of infuse them in these, in these years and places. And he really thought, okay, this is Cleopatra's the first son. This is my nephew. I, I, I've been, you know, going back and forth with these guys for a while, but I can keep the Romans at bay because they'll see I have this connection to Ptolemy the Sixth. And you have to remember that Cleopatra had this connection to Rome, the things that she loved. And so he thought because he was connected to Cleopatra, he could keep the Romans off his back. Even if he decided to take over and attack the kingdom of the south again. Well, his idea didn't work so well. Because the Romans, with their imperialism, they dashed his whole plan. As the text says, for the ships of Katim will come against him. Well, first of all, we need to note something. This is not the first time that the ships of Katim are referenced in the scripture. They're referenced in another prophecy that's earlier in Numbers. It's the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 20. Four, verses 23 to 24. Verse 23 says, Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But the ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Ashur and will afflict Eber, so they also will come to destruction. Now, Ashur and Eber, both of those uh, regions, those towns, You know where they are? They're in the Seleucid Empire. They're in the lands of the Seleucid Empire. And they were great enemies to the people of God. These two groups continued to bash on the people of God. And through Balaam, a prophet, we won't talk about him, he's not the greatest, but even through Balaam, God predicts by prophecy 
He tells, forth tells, it's not just a prediction, it's a forth telling that one day even these, these two small regions, they will come to their end. Well, they're going to come to their end because eventually Rome is going to wipe the Seleucid Empire off the map. Roman imperialism is going to come through and go... So the ships of Katim, they were already referenced in Numbers. And here they are in Daniel being referenced once again. And this is where those ships first start their movement to take over not just Egypt, but all of the Seleucid Empire. Well, in this particular instance, it's a pretty interesting note of how Antiochus Epiphanes' plan was dashed. Rome sent a delegate. His name was Gaius Papilius or Papius Laenus. And he faced down Antiochus IV. As Antiochus is marching down in Alexandria, all of a sudden here comes these Roman soldiers and they start to hem in Antiochus. And Antiochus understands that it's coming and all of a sudden uh, Gaius Papias marches up to him or Papilius, he marches up to him and basically says, cease and desist. And Antiochus says, well, I need to go back to my land and confer with uh, my wise men over what we need to do. And Gaius draws a circle in the sand, as the story goes, around Antiochus or Antiochus, and he says, no, you'll make the decision now. For if you cross out of this circle, we'll kill you. Well, in the face of Roman imperialism, he wisely backs down and says, I think I'll live another day. So he retreats. Well, his retreat is not so good for the Jews. Verse 30b to verse 35. Number four. Antiochus ruthlessly returns to ruin the Jews. Now, the first time he kind of went in to rout them and just kind of rubbed their nose in it. But now he comes to ruin them. And we learn this specifically in verse 30. That now enraged, Antiochus turned his attention back to Jerusalem to pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, verse 30b. Therefore, this is after Rome put a stop to him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. If you're willing to Hellenize, he's willing to work with you. If you're not willing to Hellenize and come into Greek culture, you're a dead person. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, verse 31, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will return to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display their strength and take action. 
Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in their actions. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Well, we need to note letter B, his attempt to ruin was no suggestion, verse 31 to 33. There were rumors circling that Antiochus IV had been murdered, and when he heard of these, he wanted to make sure everybody knew they were false, and he proved their fallaciousness because in 167 B.C., Antiochus instituted a religious rampage against the covenant people. He was set, as one writer says, on emasculating the vital of the biblical faith and was determined to see every Jew apostatize. Now, how did he do that? Well, not only did he force himself on them uh, with his armies, um, but, but you'll see in the text... Verse 31, the de- to desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with regular sacrifice. This is from earlier vision of, of Daniel chapter 8 as well. That there's going to be this figure who comes in and he just seeks to destroy everything about the Jewish system. Including the Jewish way of worship that God prescribed to them. How does he do that? Well, the death penalty was issued for Jews who circumcised their sons were found in possession of a Torah scroll, and any Sabbath observance, you would be given the death penalty. The only sacrifice that was made in the temple was on an altar erected to Zeus. So he went in, he actually erected a whole other altar to Zeus in the temple. And the only sacrifice that was to be done was to be offered to Zeus. Now, he's lived up to his name saying that he's the manifestation of God. I want you to think about that just for a second. It gives us a context for our understanding of how we deal with matters of life and faith. We're not just left to something... Subjective. We're given some objectivity here that we're not to give in specifically when any ruler tells us we are not to worship the one living God his way. And what's interesting is, is when this is done, there are wars that ensue. Some of those wars are for good reasons and some of them aren't. But there is some context which we have to recognize there are lines to be drawn. If we're told by a ruler not to worship God, not to have a Bible in our possession, what are we to do? No. We say no. We worship. Now, if they persecute us, they persecute us, but we worship. Are we going to read the Bible? Yes, we read the Bible. If we, even if we have to hide it. 
There's a big difference, though, in the idea of waging war against people and standing up in obedience to God. Whatever we may say about the Maccabean Wars, there's a purpose to standing up. But sometimes you can draw lines that you end up drawing them to your own folly. There's a thought here that needs to be taken in because ultimately Antiochus Epiphanes, his attempt to ruin the Jews was foiled. And that's in verses 34 to 35. There's this captivity and plunder for many days. And it says, now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. The idea of hypocrisy there is not our word, hypocrisy. We'll talk about that a little bit. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them purge until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This is a recognition of what took place from 167 to 165 B.C. These verses prophesy in brief the major Maccabean revolt led by uh, Matathias and his sons. Matathias was from the mountainous countryside in the village named Modin. He first fought against a small party of Antiochus' men and he won. But he fled to the mountains. And later he recognized that he had this following against Epiphanes because thousands began to gather. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go down with these thousands and I'm going to take on these generals. Well, he won. And he assumed some governmental authority. But then he died. And he left his son Judas in charge. And in 166, when he died, he was succeeded by his third son Judas, known as Maccabeus. And that word is the hammer. Well, Judas was able to slay Apollonius and other Syrian generals with the result that Antiochus now entrusted half of all his army to his last greatest general. And he charged that general, Lysias, to wipe out the Jews' root and branch. We know historically that that doesn't happen. On 25th of December, 165 B.C., the temple altar was rededicated. One year later, on an expedition in Persia, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he died. Here was a man who comes in to root out everything God had given his people and to absolutely destroy them and just smash them into the ground. And there were times he achieved his task. Some will take this text and want to to work out everything that every human is supposed to do so that that can never happen to us again. But I'm not sure that's the point of the text. I'll leave you with these three thoughts. God's sovereignty is the only hope for any person. Number one, God's sovereignty is the only hope for any person. You may say, well, you keep talking about this sovereignty. 
for the last three or four sermons, every observation has had something to do with God's sovereignty. Why do you keep telling us the same thing over and over again? Do you not have time enough in the week to figure out another word or another idea? No. I do have time. But it's that the Bible keeps bringing back to this idea. God's sovereignty is the only hope for any person. You say, okay, well, if that's the case, and if it's left up to God's sovereignty, then these rulers are mere robots. They're just robots, pawns of God, just doing what God wants them to do, and they have no way to do anything different. Well, in one sense, they are. They are robots. Robots bound to their robotic sinful natures. They love power, and war is the hope of more power. So they go back to the same sinful well almost inevitably. You know what? Thankfully, God is sovereign. (laughs) Thankfully, God is predetermining. Thankfully, God is all-knowing. If He were not, then there would be no hope to break the cycle of the sinful natures of men. This tells us God's sovereignty is so great that there is not a ruler who has ever lived or will ever live that will thwart God's plan and purpose. He had a plan for his people. He had a plan for their existence. He had a plan for what his people would be used to do. And the coming of the Messiah is still on the forefront. And if the Jews are wiped out, then Jesus can't be of the line of David. But because they're not wiped out, this covenant will go forward and God will sustain and keep His people and He will never leave them nor forsake them. And our hope is in Christ. And God proved that hope to be true because He smashed Antiochus and said, Get out! And we have to trust in our very day this day that God will smash His enemies. God's sovereignty is the only thing that breaks this cycle of the sinful natures of men. Whatever we could muster in our own person to go take on a government, could it be to some effect useful? Maybe. But I tell you more and more as I understand the covenant of God, this is why we need to pray and genuinely seek God's face that He would bring revival to this land. Revival comes through the covenant. It comes through the preaching of God's Word. The problem we have in this land is even most churches are no longer preaching God's Word. They have gone on to the ideas of men. There is no way a gospel, Bible-believing church should have a homosexual practicing homosexual in the pulpit or a transgender person in the pulpit. It's amazing enough that God would use a sinner like me because I am one. But yet one who is in open defiance of God's word. You think God's going to bless that in a nation? We can cry out to God all we want to. But the church in our nation 
There's nothing better than the people of Israel turning their back on God and saying, we'll preach what we want to, we'll speak what we want to, and in worship of you, God, we'll do what we want to. You think God will honor that? We need revival in this land. We need revival that God brings by the way of His covenant. Taking dead souls, breaking the cycle of those sinful natures, and bringing them to life in Christ. If we've ever needed His sovereignty, we need it now. Secondly, God's sovereignty is the foundation of the promise of peace for the redeemed. If we want peace, it comes through God's sovereignty. It comes through Him working through His church. Him working by the way of the covenant. When we as the church will do as God has told us to do, not just in this room, but when we leave this place, we will be the light on the hill. We'll be the salt. The problem for the church today in many nations, including our own, is we've lost our saltiness. We're not interesting and interested in living Christ-like lives before men. We're interested in saying, God, benefit me. Make me comfortable. God, make things convenient for me. Thirdly and lastly, God's sovereignty is the blanket that smothers the fire caused by human depravity. God's sovereignty is the blanket that smothers the fire caused by human depravity. You ever asked a person who's been on fire when the firemen came and they put that, that blanket over them with that gel and it just smothered that fire out and just almost immediately in the sovereignty of God when His Son returns He will smother the fire caused by human depravity. He will bring a fire of his own and he will bring a new work and he will recreate. There will be no more sickness, no more poverty, no more war, no more abuses of any and every kind. The sovereignty of God will weed it all out through the return of the Son. Greatest of all, there'll be no more sin. (laughs) The church in every generation has sought to make its own way. Even here in America, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it was the temperance movement. We're going to save everybody by the temperance movement. We're going to abolish alcohol and nobody will be a sinner anymore. Wrong. Symptom, not issue. Everybody said, oh, you know what? We're going to solve the poverty problem. And all these people started moving in liberal theology in the late 1800s and the 1900s in America, and they were going to solve all poverty, and the church was going to be able to do it. And we would do it by making sure everybody knew that we loved them. We weren't going to speak the truth about who Jesus is because Jesus was no longer the very Son of God to the liberal mindset, but we could save everybody because we'd make sure everybody had food. Do we still have poverty in America? 
If we leave the gospel, we don't have anything. If we leave God's word, we don't have anything. We lose our saltiness. You may think sometimes my reactions are outlandish and overdramatic. If they were simply because I was trying to be a dramatist, then I would say guilty as charged. But whatever you see in who I am as a man, you see it for the passion that I have. And I have a desire for this church to be a church that is a people of God who love His Word more than they love anything else. And they want to take that to this world that they live in, even if it's just Jackson and Griffin, Georgia. Fair enough, fine with me. And if we're forgotten one day in the annals of history and nobody knows of the great work that God did in Griffin, Jackson, and Covington, and Meansville, so be it. He still did it. And He used a place like this, this building, with this gathered body of Christ who believed in God's covenant. That he does and will save people according to his will. And we should never lose heart. Antiochus was smashed because the Christ was coming. He came and he's coming again. Let us ready ourselves. Because of the bridegroom's coming. He's coming for his people, his bride. Let us take it to this world and live it rightly and not give in. But let us live it graciously and not give in. Let's pray. My weaknesses, Heavenly Father, are many. But my weaknesses matter none, for you are sovereign. You take the dumb and you use them all the time. The short-sighted, the weak, and you do so for your glory. May it be done today. Give us hearts of desire, not only to know your word, that we would love you, but that we would live our work, your word in this world. And we would live it no matter whether we are persecuted or not. We're not asking you to make things easy for us. We're asking you to give us strength and stamina. Because this world around us has gone nuts. But it's just as nuts as the world of Antiochus Epiphanes.
and you sustained your people then, even when you were judging them for their sin, you still sustained them. So we praise you and ask your mercies upon us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.